I have some real estate news for you guys. Actually, several of you messaged me about this before I knew anything about it, so some of you probably already know. But the murder mansion, setting of the Cemetery Road Murders in Bowling Green, sold at auction for almost $1.2 million. It looks like a man named Steve Sheldon bought it. He's a former Kentucky State Representative, and his family owns Sheldon's Express Pharmacy down there. And he was asked what he planned to do with the property, and he basically told reporters he wasn't ready to say anything until negotiations are finalized and the deal closes, which, I mean, that's normal. But I am interested to see what happens with it. Uh, I went to that tour around Halloween, I guess two years ago now, and we walked around the cemetery and then we went across the street and sat in front of the murder mansion while the author of the Cemetery Road Murders book gave a talk. And that was really cool. So hopefully the new owners will at least allow that to continue. All this has nothing to do with today's episode. I just thought y'all might want to know about that. Um, Thank you to Suzanne for the donation. Thank you, everybody, who made October a successful month for podcast growth. We broke records on Spotify, got some new reviews on Apple. Thank you all for sharing. I really do appreciate it. And I know it's been a little while since my last episodes. I was doing such a good job getting them out regularly. I've had one written, but this past week, my dog had uh, cluster seizures. She, she's had a seizure disorder for a couple years. I, would advi- I was advised not to start medicating because they were not very frequent and they were short in um, duration. And the medications have side effects we were trying to avoid. Long story short, we can't avoid them anymore. Um, she had at least five seizures in one day. She spent the night in the ER. So I'm glad I did a little donation drive when I did because those emergency vet hospitals are not cheap, as I'm sure lots of you know. That being said... I have been a bundle of nervous energy all week, haven't gotten anything done, finally read through this, and I think it's ready to record, so we'll just see how it goes. And if any of you have had dogs with seizure disorders, it's been really comforting talking to other people who have gone through it. Um, It's just scary, and it's, it's nice to know that other people have managed it and their dogs have gone on to live long, happy lives. So if anyone wants to reach out and share any information or experiences with me, uh, please don't hesitate to do that. Now, what's on the docket for today? Something a little different, no murders or scandals, some medical disasters though. I can't remember where I came across this guy, but I know at the time I thought he could have his own little episode, so I jotted his name down on my to-do list, and I'm really glad I did. Welcome to episode 134. The Life of Walter G. Campbell. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I would be impressed if you knew who Walter Campbell was. He's a more obscure figure from Kentucky, even though he was kind of a big deal. Walter Gilbert Campbell was born in Flatlick. Knox County in southeastern Kentucky 
on November 8, 1877. That's Appalachia, it's coal country. In the 1880 census, the population of the entire county was a little over 10,000. I think his family actually lived in the small town of Flat Lick, but sometimes in the papers, they would say he was from Barberville, which is like the big city in Knox County. Walter's parents were Charlie and Sarah Campbell. They were in their mid-20s when they had Walter. He also had a brother named Edwin. Charlie and Sarah were married in 1876, so right before Walter was born. And unfortunately, Charlie died in November of 1884 when Walter had just turned seven. So Sarah, in her early 30s, was left raising these two young boys on her own. I tried to find out what happened to Walter's dad, but I couldn't come up with anything. And I really don't know much about Walter's life after the passing of his father until adulthood. He went to the University of Kentucky. In May of 1900, Walter would have been around 23, so it wouldn't have been unusual for him to still be in college. And I found this article that read, Arrested for Insubordination, Lexington. Herndon Kelly, son of Judge Kelly, Sergeant Walter Campbell of Barberville, and T.A. Jones of Clay County are under arrest at the Kentucky State College for insubordination while the college cadets were at Chattanooga recently. Kelly is the pitcher and Campbell the catcher of the baseball team, while Jones is a member of last year's football team. I'm confident this is the same Walter Campbell because I know he went to UK, which was referred to as Kentucky State College in 1900, and it says he's from Barberville. Also, being me, I had to dig a little deeper, so I found a photo of the 1900 Kentucky baseball team. I looked really hard at their faces, and I'll post a picture of the one that I'm pretty sure is him versus a photo of him later in life. I mean, it's got to be him. So I don't know the details of this arrest, but this was like the one time I could find that Walter broke the rules in his life. Actually, there is one other little thing in the 1930s, but that's totally different. We'll get there. So yeah, Walter was an athlete. He was on the baseball team. He was very well-rounded. He was in the glee club. He was a member of a fraternity. He was also involved in what I guess would be like ROTC today, and that's why he was listed as sergeant in the article. Um, He was good at the ROTC stuff. He was promoted to captain in 1901. And then he graduated from UK in June of 1902 with a Bachelor of Arts degree. Quote, he was spoken of by one of his professors as having one of the clearest and strongest minds of any of the students who had attended college for years. In 1906, he received his law degree from the University of Louisville. He lived there for a while, but he was retained by the Kentucky Experiment Station in Lexington. And if you don't know what that is, it sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? The Kentucky Experiment Station. In 1885, the president of the school, along with two board members, attended a meeting in Washington, D.C. with the Department of Agriculture. There it was stressed that these universities, most of which in the 1880s were brand new, they needed research facilities where they could conduct agricultural scientific experiments. There were about a dozen state colleges who already had these up and running, and after this meeting, the plan was to start one at UK. They actually didn't have much of a choice because later that year, Congress passed the Hatch Act, which basically mandated every state school needed to have one of these research facilities, 
and they became federally funded. Keep in mind, this was really important work. There were no antibiotics. We were pretty clueless about diseases that are so treatable today. Private homes didn't have refrigerators, no typhoid or polio vaccines. Germ theory was brand new and most doctors were rolling their eyes at it. So there was a lot to learn in terms of safely growing, packing, distributing, and storing healthy foods and medicine. So in the early 1900s, the school retained Walter as an attorney for this experiment station. I don't know if he really had much of an interest in agriculture or food and medicine at an earlier age, or if this is just where he happened to land since it was his alma mater. He was still also working some in Louisville, prosecuting state food law violations. And he must have been doing a really good job because by June of 1907, just a year after graduating from law school, he was hired on as chief inspector of the Pure Food Department in Washington, D.C. This was a big deal. There was a huge article about it in the paper announcing he would be making $3,000 a year, which would have been six figures today. Pretty good for a boy from Flat Lick. The article says, quote, Kentucky methods in detecting violations of the National Pure Food Law will be used in the department at Washington. Campbell will direct the work of all the inspectors under his office. Mr. Campbell became so proficient in protecting the pure food law in Kentucky that he was constrained to take the government examination for national director of the work. Though over 1,800 persons took the test, and though 16 passed, Mr. Campbell, on the recommendation of all the bureau heads in the department, was picked from the 16 some days ago. One of the men responsible for Walter landing this government position was Dr. Harvey Washington Wiley. Dr. Wiley was born in a log cabin in Indiana in 1844. He should also have his own episode at some point, even though I know I've gone heavy on the Indiana stuff lately. He taught Indiana's first lab course in chemistry in 1873. He had several real medical degrees, which I have a lot of respect for at a time when you could get some pretty phony degrees from a lot of phony universities. Anyway, very accomplished and interesting Hoosier, and that's who was responsible for getting Walter in the door of what would become the FDA. Also, if you enjoy looking at old-timey photos like I do, he's a good one to look up. Just an amazing, intense face, and he's very stylish. Dr. Harvey Wiley. Walter Campbell met with the president of the University of Kentucky before he left, who said this about him. Quote, he is a man who has worked himself up by sheer force of energy, and we are proud of him. He has a strong character and is a man of great intelligence. Now, this department Walter goes to work for restructures itself all the time. But at that moment, he was the chief inspector of the Pure Food Administration in early 1914. And at the time, what they mostly did was enforce the laws that were already in place. The enforcement piece was even bigger than research or trying to make new regulations or anything like that. 
1921 article, it said, quote, this enforcement work now compromises about 90% of all the activities in the Bureau. So it wasn't quite like prohibition agents where they're going out potentially to gunfights and smashing stills and stuff like that. It wasn't that dramatic, but it was boots on the ground, inspecting, manufacturing plants, interviewing employees, stuff like that. The article went on to explain why Walter was such a good man for the job. Quote, his success is largely due to his ability to handle people, for he has a wonderful faculty getting the most and the best out of those who are working for him. And there would be about 600 employees working under him. During his early years, the only act that really existed that they could enforce was the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, which banned foreign and interstate traffic in unadulterated or mislabeled food and drug products. And that was really the gold standard until the 30s. There wasn't much to it, and it left open a lot of loopholes. I do have a tiny bit of information on Walter's personal life. In November 1916, at the age of 39, Walter married 35-year-old May Lambert. May was originally from Virginia, but I think they met while both living in D.C. They were socialites, often mentioned in the papers as hosting or attending all kinds of events. They would stay together their entire lives, and I don't think they ever had children. Now, Walter appeared in a downright gruesome article about horse meat in 1917. Apparently, people in certain cities like Milwaukee were eating a lot of horse meat in the 19-teens, but Walter was not into it. And I'm not going to get into the details because for whatever reason, this is so uncomfortable to me. But the short story is that he said, you know what, we're going to let you guys keep eating your horse meat out there, but we will not be putting it on the menus in Washington, D.C. or like anywhere further east. So over the decades, Walter's name appears again and again in court cases where he's testifying in these trials that are related to things like proper cold storage practices and things like that. And typically, It's after a court case, then a new bill would go to Congress, and that's how the changes were made. It was totally a reactive system, which in a lot of ways it still is today. In 1921, he was officially the acting chief of the Bureau of Chemistry for the Department of Agriculture, even though, quote, the new chief of the Bureau of Chemistry is not a chemist, but a trained lawyer and exceptional organizer. The Bureau of Chemistry started with a group of maybe five men in 1862, quote, for the study of chemical problems pertaining to agriculture, as well as those of industries utilizing agricultural products. The next year, Walter was involved in a case where the army was selling chloroform that was being used as an anesthetic, and basically it was too potent. Uh, It was lethal. And Walter thought this happened because they were storing the chloroform in tin containers instead of glass bottles. Other witnesses were arguing that it was because the containers were being stored in high temperatures. I'm actually not sure what happened with this case, 
but it's just another example of the types of things Walter dealt with in his career. Now, he blamed a lot of what was going on in the early 1920s on restrictions being so lax during World War I because we didn't really have a choice. He said, quote, during the war, we encouraged substitutions and stretching out the supply. This has led to many substituted articles, giving the Bureau a great deal of trouble. In 1923, he was promoted again, this time to the newly created position of Director of Regulatory Work of the United States Department of Agriculture, where he would assist the Secretary of Agriculture in administering the law enforcement work of the department. This office looked after the enforcement of the Food and Drug Act, Tea Act, Naval Stores Act, Insecticide Act, Import Silk Act, and Caustic Poison Act. Some of these are self-explanatory. Um, I looked up the Naval Stores Act. That one was about turpentine. But ultimately, this was very similar to the other roles he had already had. And then in 1927, he was appointed chief of the new Food, Drug, and Insecticide Administration, FDIA, which would officially begin on July 1st of that year. There seemed to be a crackdown on patent medicines and quack doctors in the late 20s that Walter was certainly on board with. That year, Walter said, quote, among the products which received fraud orders were an alleged consumption cure consisting of turpentine gum flavored with cinnamon, a tuberculosis cure made from a number of worthless mixtures and marketed by one wholly ignorant of the disease, a so-called cure for cancer through the use of a bread and milk poultice, a pernicious anemia cure consisting largely of ground granite, two imported syrups similar in composition to New Orleans molasses claimed to cure all ailments of the kidneys. Also in the 1920s, the whole game had kind of changed because prohibition went into effect and all the horrible alternatives being produced were something else the Department of Agriculture had to pay attention to, sort of, indirectly, because U.S. Marshals were in charge of enforcing prohibition. And then finally in 1927, the Treasury Department created the Bureau of Prohibition. But it does make sense that people were looking to the FDIA or the Department of Agriculture to help regulate these dangerous concoctions. And we'll talk more about that in a second. I wanted to mention another thing too. There were journalists across the country who would cite Walter for their opinions on food trends. And there was this one I found um, from 1930 that I thought was interesting out of California from the Chico Record, written by a doctor who had a health column in the local paper. And on this occasion, he was writing about these new processed foods like breakfast cereals that were marketed as healthy. And this doctor, Clendenning, was telling readers to be careful with these products. And he referenced Walter, who said, quote, so-called health-giving biscuits, foods, and waters are not only a waste of money if purchased for the curative properties, but are responsible for a far more serious loss because their use is relied upon as a substitute for appropriate corrective measures, such as a proper diet, exercise, and sunshine. We still struggle with these same things today. In 
1930, an article came out criticizing the Department of Agriculture for not doing enough in response to one specific issue. 1930 was the year we saw a huge increase in the number of Jake Leg cases. Michigan State has a great article all about Jamaican ginger paralysis if you want like the full deep dive. I'll just give you a quick summary. Jamaican ginger extract was a popular patent medicine throughout the 19th century, and in its pure form, it wasn't harmful, although it did have a pretty high alcohol content, and it could be sold, even during Prohibition, because it was medicinal. It tasted okay, not great, but there was this company called Boston Hub Products, and they started adding triorthocresyl phosphate, TOCP, to the ginger extract. And this ingredient made the drink taste better and it was cheap. So Boston Hub Products was supplying pharmacies with this product and the public could buy it technically as medicine, but you could buy as much as you wanted and you could get super drunk. Great plan for everybody involved, right? Except TOCP is a slow acting neurotoxin, most notably used as a flame retardant. Quote, Weeks after consumption, victims typically notice numbness in the legs, followed by weakness, foot drop, and eventual paralysis. Foot drop is where you struggle to lift the front part of your foot because your nerves are damaged and they're not working correctly. With this disease, it either took a long time to recover or in some cases you did not recover. From 1930 to 1931, it's estimated the disease may have affected up to 100,000 Americans from drinking ginger jake. There were no laws in place regulating what ingredients companies like Boston Hub could add to things like Jamaican ginger. That was a problem. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There was a Senate Agriculture Committee meeting in June of 1930, and Walter Campbell really had to answer as to why the department hadn't done anything to regulate these drinks. And he basically said, not my circus, not my monkeys. This is just another excuse for me to go back to my soapbox about how bad the whole execution of prohibition by the federal government was, just how botched it was. It was carried out poorly, badly organized. And so even though it seems counterintuitive, this really wasn't Campbell's responsibility. He told the committee, quote, Ginger Jake is a bootleg product used for beverage purposes, and its regulation by agreement with the Treasury comes under the Prohibition Bureau. If any of the ginger, which caused paralysis, had been taken in medicinal dosages, I am informed there would have been no paralysis. To me, this answer is just so career politician-esque. He's obviously been in D.C. for a long time now, decades, and it shows. But basically, he's saying, you know, if people were taking this as medicine, which falls under my jurisdiction, then I would look into it, but that's not the case. 
This meeting got pretty heated. Um, One senator asked him, did you not tell one of your employees before this hearing began that you'd hate to be asked about Ginger Jake? And of course, he denied that vehemently and demanded to know who said it. There was a ton of back and forth uh, over whether this counted as a medicine or a bootleg beverage. And the conclusion was, this was the Treasury Department's deal. This was kind of their fault and they needed to figure it out. This was a very interesting time in his career. I think he really believed in what he was doing. I think he cared about his job and his work deeply. And I think he was being held back by other departments. And I think he really resented that to a degree. Their entire role in prohibition was such a blurry one. In this same article, it says the department was authorized to regulate the sale of whiskey, but by agreement with the treasury leaves that work up to the prohibition authorities. So basically they've decided, you know, they could regulate it, but they're not going to. The early thirties were trying times for Walter Campbell. In 1931, he was sued by a man named Oscar M. Harkness over an auto mishap. This was in October, and the article said Mr. Harkness was injured by Mr. Campbell's automobile in June and had been in the hospital ever since. So it sounds like Walter hit this guy, and his insurance had been paying Mr. Harkness monthly and weren't going to do it anymore, so they sued Walter for $50,000. This was never mentioned in the papers again, so I'm not sure how they settled this, but clearly it didn't interrupt Walter's career. And next came the Copeland Bill. This was a bill Walter and the Assistant Secretary of Agriculture discussed with President Roosevelt directly at length. This was a big one because it added cosmetics to the conversation and to the scope of what was becoming the FDA. It would address vitamins, mechanical devices offered for curative purposes. It would allow the administration to be stricter with false advertising, and it would require labels to have more information. Walter described it as, quote, intended to correct jokers and deficiencies in the 27-year-old existing law. He was a big fan. It was a quite controversial bill, and there was actually a good chance it wouldn't pass. Obviously, there were companies and lobbyists who needed those loopholes from the 1906 Act to stay open so they could keep operating as they always had and make more money. Companies like the one that manufactured a concoction made with horsetail that they claimed could cure diabetes. Walter used them during his testimony to Congress to get this new bill passed, He said even though this product might not be directly harmful, the fact that people are using it instead of taking insulin is harmful. It's the lie that it's curative that's doing the harm. And it turns out we know now that horsetail can make someone's blood sugar too low, so it actually was harmful. But that was just a good example. In fact, it was a great example because the proprietor of the horsetail concoction wasn't a pharmacist or a doctor, and when they had to testify and defend themselves in front of Congress, their attorneys provided this list of testimonials and said, look at all these people who have said that our horsetail has cured their diabetes. And the feds were like, okay, great, you have this list. 
Where are all these people? Why are they not here to testify? So they went out to find some of the people on this list. And it turned out most of them were dead. And their causes of death? Diabetes. I don't want to get too into the weeds here because I could go on about this all day. If this kind of stuff interests you, I recommend reading Leaders in Food and Drug Law, Part 5 in the Food and Drug Law Journal, Volume 50 from 1995. It's available for free on JSTOR. I know you're all going to rush out and read it right now. (laughs) Um, Luckily, the bill did pass, but it wasn't just smooth sailing from there. And they must have made some concessions to get this passed because it sounds like cosmetics still couldn't be regulated nearly as strictly as Walter would have liked. Um, So he's in the spotlight again in 1937. A lot of times, you know, unfortunately, it took a tragedy for there to be change. And this time it was the sulfonilamide disaster. You guys may have heard of this one. This was an antimicrobial drug used to treat things like strep throat, and it had been used successfully for years in powder and pill form. Uh, Around that time, it was also being used to treat gonorrhea, scarlet fever, and meningitis. So it was a popular drug, and there was demand for it in liquid form. Apparently from the South, it was noted that Northerners still liked to take their medicine in pill form, but Southerners preferred liquid. So the chief chemist at a pharmaceutical company in Bristol, Tennessee, got to work on a liquid form to meet this demand. He found that sulfonilamide would dissolve in diethylene glycol. It was tested for fragrance, appearance, and taste. All good. They compounded a quantity of this elixir and sent over 600 shipments across the country. That was in June of 1937. The shipments arrived at their destinations and started being distributed in September. By October, the drug was responsible for over 100 deaths in 15 states. And everyone turned to the FDA and said, what the hell? How did this happen? The manufacturer had tested that drug to make sure it looked, tasted, and smelled good. In fact, it was raspberry flavored, if you're curious but they hadn't tested it for toxicity. And if your ears perked up when you heard diethylene glycol, maybe you listened to a lot of true crime, yeah, that's what's in antifreeze, it's poisonous. By October 19, 1937, the papers reported that Walter said the FDA was taking precautionary steps to remove the elixir from the market. They immediately sent investigators to the headquarters in Bristol and found out the company had already sent telegrams everywhere they sent shipments telling the businesses to send those products back. But they didn't say why. They didn't explain it was urgent or that the elixir was toxic. So the FDA forced a second wave of telegrams, more to the point that time, but getting all of this, doing damage control was just a huge operation, and the media was really harsh towards the manufacturers, the pharmacists, and the FDA, and rightfully so. And so Walter took this as an opportunity to say, hey, you know what? Give us more power. Let us regulate better, pass better bills, 
and this stuff won't be an issue anymore. In one article, Walters described as the pugnacious, bald-headed lawyer chemist chief of the Food and Drug Administration. And he's using it as an example, like, how many times do we have to go through this? The Copeland bill wasn't enough. He wanted more regulation so this would not happen again. A chemist couldn't just play alone in his lab, make something, and send it across the country on a whim. Quote, sooner or later, public consciousness will awaken to the necessity of preventing the dissemination of poisonous nostrums to cure everything from smallpox to hair lip. Even plumbers must get licenses to tinker with the pipes of your house. But men who have failed to make a living otherwise can ruin the pipes of the human body and make a neat fortune before the federal government can stop them. And the public was starting to come around. For example, the National League of Women Voters declared, quote, the sulfonilamide deaths point to the need of government checks on products before they are distributed. I think women in general liked Mr. Walter Campbell, and I can see why. I couldn't find a lot about like his personal life, right? But his personality shines through every time he's quoted in the papers. He was charming, he was clever, I think he was handsome, and he was obviously very smart. Anyway, in 1938, they were finally cracking down on cosmetics a little bit, and he was thrilled to be taking the lead on that. An article in the Sunday Star from DC read, America's czar of cosmetics is rugged pure food veteran. Quote, America's new czar of beauty products is a rugged chap who manicures his own nails and takes his suntan straight. He made it very plain today that he was not going to try any beauty aids on himself. I might use something to promote the growth of hair, he chuckled, raising heavy dark brows significantly toward his bald head. But I've tried all those, and they don't work. I love this article. I'm just going to read you the rest of it. Quote, Mr. Campbell flushed under his even tan at the thought. He got the tan golfing and mowing the lawn at his nearby Virginia acreage, not sitting under a lamp and without benefit of suntan oil. Not that he minds anyone else using cosmetics. Bless their hearts, he said. If the women of America want them, then I'm for it. So like I said, originally cosmetics were included in the Copeland bill from the early 30s, but a new bill in 1938 was going to allow the federal government to regulate them way more. And Walter played a pivotal role in getting this, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938, passed. There were various elements to this bill regarding cosmetics that would go into effect over time, but what would become effective immediately was a ban on known harmful ingredients in the products. Two products that got banned straight away were Lash Lure and Magic Dye Stick. These were lash dyes, okay, to make your eyelashes darker. Lash Lure contained P-phenylenediamine. Turned out that chemical caused, quote, horrific blisters, abscesses, and ulcers on the face, eyelids, and eyes of Lash Lure users, and it led to blindness for some. In one case, the ulcers were so severe that a woman developed a bacterial infection and died. So you can imagine Walter was eager to get these products off the market. Lash Lure was a big one. 
The other two big ones were Kremlu and Gorod's Oriental Cream. Kremlu was a hair removal potion advertised as safe, but people lost hair all over their bodies, had permanent eye damage, and sometimes went into paralysis. It was made with thallium acetate, rat poison. And then Gorod's Oriental Cream was a skin cream that had been on the market for decades, advertised as a magic beautifier. But it caused dark rings around the eyes and neck, followed by bluish black gums and loose teeth. It was made with calomel, a mercury compound. Not good. So it was Walter's job to get rid of all these dangerous cosmetic products, and he was getting paid pretty well for it. In 1938, there was an article in the Courier Journal about how many people, men from Kentucky, held high-ranking government jobs, and it listed all their salaries. Walters was $8,500, which would be about $185,000 today, so pretty good gig. Not as good as Stanley Reed, though. He was ranked first in the article. Stanley Reed was an associate justice of the Supreme Court, and he was making twenty grand a year, which would be over 400000 now. Mr. Reed might get his own episode in the future. Now, in 1941, there was an issue with sulfathiazole tablets contaminated with phenobarbital manufactured by the Winthrop Chemical Company out of New York. This company was in trouble, not only for putting these tablets on the market, but for not notifying the FDA as soon as they realized they had made a big mistake. Very similar to the sulfonilamide disaster just a few years earlier. They tried to quietly recall the drug after they were alerted by physicians in December of 1940 that they were having really bad side effects. By the time the FDA got wind of this debacle, the company had only retrieved three quarters of the tablets distributed, meaning over 100,000 were still out there, able to be accessed by the public. The drug ended up killing over 300 people, including several children. This is now known in the medical community as the 1941 sulfathiazole disaster, and it prompted the FDA to revise its manufacturing and quality control requirements. And then in 1942, there was the cockroach problem. There was an apple butter and jelly packing plant in Winchester, Virginia that had a contract with the army. Keep in mind, it's 1942, so we're very much in the middle of this war and those supplies were important. A third party inspection agency observed this canning plant and quote, we found that the food which was being canned was being prepared under shockingly unsanitary conditions I had brought to my desk a jar of apple jelly, which had nicely embalmed under the lid a cockroach. This went to court, and Walter testified that they had investigated the same canning plant, and everything was just fine. He said, those samples that you had must have been sitting aside for a long time. They weren't fresh. Your investigation is irrelevant, basically. Everything we looked at was cockroach-free, and that's the bottom line. All of this was to decide whether or not the Army had the right to cancel its contract with this company. I'm not sure all the details. It sounds like there's a little more to it than just that. 
But I know that Walter really went to bat for this company, which was strange because usually he was investigating them, not defending them. This was actually the only example I saw where he was testifying on behalf of a company. And I think it's worth noting that maybe he wasn't just out to get everybody. I mean, I think he was a fair man. If he investigated a company and their practices were up to his standards, he would defend them. Either that or they were sliding him a bunch of cash under the table, but I like to believe it's the former. Walter retired from his post at the FDA in 1944 at 66 years old. He would play golf, grow vegetables, take a more active role in civic affairs, and quote, put around on his two and a half acres in Arlington. During, he did some interviews, you know, when he uh, left the FDA, and one thing he said he was so excited about at the time of his retirement was that penicillin was becoming so widely available to the military and the public because World War II wasn't over. Um, and it was just such a big deal to be able to get large amounts of this medicine to our, our military. But he also talked about what a long way to go they still had ahead of them. It was such an uphill battle, constantly fighting Congress and these big companies and the lobbyists. So, you know, I think he was satisfied with the work that he had done while acknowledging there was still a lot that wasn't, you know, perfect yet. Walter moved to Florida after his retirement with his wife. He died there in Orlando in 1963 when he was 85 years old. I realize compared to some of my other topics, this maybe isn't the most enthralling story, but this is a lot of stuff we take for granted now. And I always like to learn about, you know, the, the struggles we had to navigate to get to where we are today as far as like food and drug laws. And like I've said, we still have such a way to go. Even today, there is so much misleading bullshit out there. I remember asking my biology teacher in college which skincare ingredients commonly advertised in products today could actually like break the skin barrier or do anything they claim to. And he basically said none of them. I think skincare and hair products are some of the most deceptive advertisers we have left today. Um, and again, when you think about our stuff compared to ingredients that are banned in other places, in our food and in our cosmetics, you know? So that is the story of Walter Gilbert Campbell. Let me know what you all think. You can email kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com, connect on social media, on Instagram, at kyhistoryhaunts, or search Kentucky History and Haunts on Facebook. Be sure to join the Facebook group, Kentucky History and Haunts, and more. And there's merch on my website. Put some cute new hats on there. Uh, that's kyhistoryhaunts.com slash merch. And if you like medical history and politics as much as I do, I would also recommend another article you can access on JSTOR called Healthy Public Relations, the FDA's 1930s Legislative Campaign by Gwen Kay. I tried to keep my story mostly about Walter Campbell specifically and his role in the FDA's creation, but if you want more on just the general timeline and history of the FDA, that's a good place to start. Okay, thanks for listening. Until next time.